Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. I am really excited today because with this episode, I'm going to be able to incorporate another one of my favorite fandoms, James Bond. It hasn't come up before, but I do like James Bond movies a lot. And today we're going to welcome Dr. Lisa Funnel from the University of Oklahoma. Let's get started. On tap today, we have Lisa Funnel. How are you doing for this fine day? I'm good. I'm I'm surviving. <laughs> I, and I should I'd say this is Dr. Lisa Funnel. Not forgetting that there. Thank you. Uh, you are out of the University of Oklahoma and mm-hmm. the author of several books about, among other things, James Bond. Yes. Yeah, so, I I love James Bond. So why not write a book about him? Well, yeah, and, and <laughs> that's that's definitely true. But you take an interesting take on it. Something that not a lot of people. Well, I should say. Your take is that you do dissect the gender issues and the geopolitical issues of James Bond, but not in a dismissive way. You're still a fan. Yeah, and I think that that's something that a lot of people have really questioned. Like, Mm -hmm. how is it possible that you can be a woman and a feminist and a fan all at the same time? And there's this assumption that there's some sort of inherent contradiction in me that I'm, you know, sitting here struggling. And I think it's important to recognize that you can critique things that you love. You can want more from these texts. You know, I would love to be James Bond, right? And be able to do some of the stuff that he does without limitations. Um, But if we love something, we can also want more from something. Think about a relationship with anybody in your life. If it's a really close, loving relationship, you don't simply just accept everything that they do. You usually oftentimes critique them and argue with them and really want uh, what is best for them. And sometimes that means making little tweaks and changes so that it, they come out on, on on the better, on the better side of things. So this is really sort of scholarship that comes out of a place of love. And, and sometimes I just want more from James Bond, but that doesn't mean that I have to disconnect myself and, and not engage. Because if you think about it, most media is problematic. And if you tell me what you like, I can probably tell you what is problematic or what is wrong with it. And if you tell me what I'm supposed to like, then you're actually prescribing to me my own personal taste. And that's also problematic. It's just this assumption that I'm going to like romances and and other uh, popular cultural elements that have been ascribed as being feminine. But usually I, I tend to like James Bond and rock music and a whole bunch of other stuff. So when you say you're critiquing him, are you critiquing James Bond, the character, or Ian Fleming, the author? Uh, can I do both? You can. I'm just asking. <laughs> yeah, and I think these are just cultural texts. And they're written in the moment, and they relay a particular perspective. So Ian Fleming is writing in the 1950s and in the 1960s. And what he was grappling with was a changing world. So it's after the World War II. But he's also grappling with changes within the feminist movement. We're seeing women going into the workplace. And a lot of his texts are really trying to understand how do we understand these women? How do we understand women in the service? Can a woman in the service have a relationship? And can she be loyal to the job? Or is there inherent an inherent contradiction, and does the same go for, for Bond? So I feel as though Ian Fleming is grappling with it and certainly has his own perspective. I don't have to agree with the things that he that he writes, but I can certainly look at them as being a voice of the time. And the same thing with James Bond. It's amazing to be able to study like a set of texts. This is what, 24, hopefully 25 films, sometimes, sometime, no time to die will come, come out, over a nearly six decade period. 
And so we're watching how the James Bond films are really registering social changes, political changes, economic changes, environmental changes. The world changes and Bond has to adapt. And within that world, the role of women also changes. And we see James Bond adapting to that as well. So it's a really great text to be able to trace um, all of these types of changes while also watching an entertaining uh, uh, action film in the process. So I think it's a really great text to be able to critique what is going on, how the world is presented. Um, and there's a lot of things that I like and there's some things that I don't. And I think that's most people, you know, we can pick any text and, and feel that way. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that there's a, a definite change in that when uh, M shifts from being a male to a female? Yeah, definitely. And I, I always look at the 1990s films as being a little bit different. So coming after six years from uh, License to Kill, so the world has changed. You know, we're no longer, uh, we've seen the fall of the Soviet Union. So politically, the world has changed. But it's really coming in this post-feminist uh, moment. And post-feminism is basically a feminist movement. And it has a very particular perspective. And the perspective is that women are equal in society, that women should, not, should, should no longer be limited uh, by any sort of ideas about them, about their bodies, about their sexualities. And there's a lot of influence in terms of media in the 1990s and early 2000s, especially with like spy thrillers um, and television shows as well. I don't believe that we're in a post-feminist you know, moment, but, you know, it certainly was an influential idea that's being brought through. And so you see the Brosnan films are grappling with this idea that the world has changed, the women of Bond have changed, and now Bond has to adjust to it. And so you see that initial tension between um, Judy Dench's M and, and Bond and saying, you know, I, I see you for who you are, or, or maybe you're, you know, a sexist, misogynistic dinosaur, you know, a relic of the Cold War, and, you know, you can't use your charm on me. But at the same time, she also has a soft spot for Bond and sees a value in some of those old school ways. And so the films of the 1990s sort of show, yes, we need to move forward, but there is still some value in our history and in our tradition. And, and I think that that's an interesting balance that they're walking. And I do feel that the women of the 1990s are far stronger. They're just more physically capable, more intellectually engaged in the missions. We finally have the return of consistent women villains because they kind of disappear in the 70s and the 80s. We really only have Mayday from, you know, a view to a kill as being the only primary villain. And so you see Judy Dench comes back and you see, you know, films that are populated with a lot of interesting women. And I think that's an interesting time in the world of Bond. Do you think that the those that stretch of movies becomes awkward because the character had been around for so long and age becomes a factor? Um, you mean Pierce Brosnan aging or just the franchise itself aging? The franchise itself. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because, you know, being on the James Bond and Fred's podcast, you, we get a, a variety of different perspectives. And so some of my contributors there think that the Brosnan era films are awkward or, you know, that they're trying to do a lot in these films. But I see it as being the development of blockbuster action cinema and James Bond films responding to that. So Pierce Brosnan's Bond is a lot more action oriented. Um, I actually like Pierce Brosnan. I think that he really brings me back to Roger Moore in the way that he has that sense of wit about him. He can deliver a line pretty well. Um, and he has a lot of moments where um, that are a little bit self-deprecating. And I love self-deprecating humor. I have that <laughs> going for me. And so there's just a lot to Pierce Brosnan and what I think he brings to the role in the 1990s that makes those films, uh, I think, just work. 
Um, and so I, I personally don't feel as though the films feel stale or aged. What I will say is that to me, Tomorrow Never Dies was sort of at a crossroads. Like, what do we do at this point? And I think Tomorrow Never Dies went a little bit too far with its special effects. You know, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do like everything. Like they threw everything in the kitchen sink at us in that film. And I think they really went overboard. And then we had to scale it back for Casino Royale. And 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 again, Martin Campbell coming to the rescue. I think he did a great job with Goldeneye. And then he comes in with Casino Royale. And he is the man with the Midas touch when it comes to rebooting James Bond and really giving sort of a, a really great cushion within which Bond can then work. I, I kind of had that feeling about the world is not enough. I, I feel like that was just a point where it was just a bit too much and I was not on that that train anymore. <laughs> I still like it, but it is on, on my lower tier of, of Bond. But what I do like about that film is that we do get Electra King as you know, the arch villain. She, to mm -hmm. me, is the only arch villain that we have. And I know that there are some people who say, but it's Renard. I'm like, mm, I think that he's really just sort of like, like the Zorn in Mayday, but flip him. I think that that's, that's the dynamic that we have. And so I love seeing her, but not everything in that film definitely clicks with me either. I prefer the, the first two Brosden era films much more than I prefer the last two. Agreed, agreed. Uh, I think at that point they were just, again, looking for where do we take this from here? Where do we go from here? And that, that seems to be a constant question every two or three movies. Yeah, and I, I mean, when it comes to the Daniel Craig era... I feel as though like Casino Royale was, was amazing. You know, to me, I think that it is a standalone film. Even if you're not a Bond fan, you can watch Casino Royale and appreciate everything that it's doing. I think that if you are a Bond fan, you get an enhanced reading because you understand what's going on in the franchise, the way it's reworking and playing with conventions. I find it to be incredibly innovative. The music's good. The acting's great. Vesper Lind is amazing. You know, there's just a lot of good things happening in that film. And then the question is, where do we go from there, given that success? And I feel as though maybe the first three films, they kind of work together as a trilogy. But then by the time we get to Spectre, it's just it's a lot of repetition. And I, I, I'm looking for some freshness. And I don't know what's going to happen with No Time to Die. Could be amazing, could be terrible. I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about regardless. So, I mean, I'm excited for it either way. But it is the question of, do we constantly have to look back and keep pulling back? We did that for three films. I thought we were done with it. Uh, and then Spectre comes in and it was just like, let's pull everything back. Let's go back to the 60s. And I was like, no. So I, I would really like for the next iteration of Bond, I don't know if it'd be No Time to Die or not, but to be a forward-looking film and really start from scratch and, and, and take an opportunity to innovate ourselves once again in the world of Bond. I think that that's an interesting... I mean, it's the only franchise that's really able to do it successfully, and I'm looking forward to seeing the next iteration. If you were to say what would be relevant to Bond from a geopolitical perspective for the next 20 years, just a couple issues, a couple themes, just a couple beats. Oh, goodness me. Well... Right now, we're going through a lot of stuff <laughs> politically when we look at the U.S. and the U.K. I think Brexit is definitely going to have to be on the radar, depending on how. I mean, I haven't even kept up with everything that's going on with, with Brexit or if it's or if it's not Brexit or are we voting on it. I'm not really sure where things fall. But what it does is it changes the geopolitical relationship of, of the U.K. in relation to Europe. And so for Bond 
Can he make strategic partnerships? Is he going to be trusted because he's an MI6 agent? Or is he going to be seen as, oh, you're just part of the UK over there. You're no longer one of us. So will they be able to share information uh, with each other? Can he easily cross over borders? Are we going to have to see more airport scenes of James Bond standing there in the customs line, right? <laughs> you know, being questioned, like, why are you here? You're no longer one of us. You're not part of the European Union. I think that should play a role because it is a major change. And then I'm not too sure how much they will dive into the U.S. political system. Uh, we've got an election coming up next week. I have no idea where the country is going to land on this. I don't know how much they want to dive into U.S. politics. Um, I, I have a feeling they'll probably just sort of like maybe avoid that and, and focus, maybe shift their shift their attention up, up to other places. Uh, but it may be an issue. So I think that'll be something. Um, in terms of other issues, I would really like to see... Okay, Quantum of Solace, not the greatest film, but I no. did like the focus in on environmentalism, uh, resource conflict, and I'd like to see us have a little bit more, um, more narratives focusing in on that because resources have always been a component of the James Bond films, whether it's mm. diamonds, oil, water, gold, it has always been these material resources uh, that offer safety and security to different nations, so Bond's going to fight on, on behalf of the UK, um, but then you have these organizations that want to hoard them for themselves, right, and take that security away from others. And so I think it would be really interesting to see after the coronavirus where we are you know, when it comes to our, our resource management, climate change is a huge issue. And I think that maybe even, and this is sort of my shout out to Klaus Dodds, I do a lot of work with him, but he focuses a lot on the Arctic, right? And so what happens when the ice in the Arctic starts to melt? What happens to that territory? Who gets to claim it? Is this going to be the next source of conflict between Russia and of course, other nations just sort of, on the, I'm thinking of on the top of the globe, right? Uh, mm -hmm. in, in the North, in the Arctic, something like that, I think would be uh, pretty fascinating as well. So yeah, I think that there's a lot that, that we could touch on. I would agree. And I, I'm thinking back to, it, it seems like there's a, a pedigree of franchises that focus on environmentalism a lot, that they yeah. tend to have a very simplistic view of it. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of, okay, Please pardon my language, Captain Planet, mm -hmm. where, where, yeah, the stories just had no basis in reality. It was just like, if you dig in the ground, you're bad. And that was, that's just not the way we can work. And I think James yeah. Bond would have a better uh, method of, of uh, dealing with that with some level of substance and nuance. Yeah, and, so and, and it's interesting. I can't remember his name, but I... I really can't remember his name. I had a conversation with um, the professor who actually started the ice coring, who like uh, pioneered ice coring. And he and so basically with ice coring, you look down, you cut big slices of ice, and then you can go down and see like gas levels, chemicals, so you can um, uh, understand you know climate change in a broader sense, what the climate was. And so talking to him, you know, these are experts in the field. He's stating it's unrealistic to think we just stop everything with oil. You know, we stop drilling. You know, we stop being reliant on fossil fuels. He argues that it's going to take a really long time to transition and we have to do it in a sustainable way. And I, I really wish that our media didn't wasn't so dramatic about it and says it's an mm -hmm. either or situation. And even the conversations that we hear and and, and, and being in, in an oil state like Oklahoma, this mm -hmm. is a huge issue. I mean, so much of our economy here relies 
on oil. And even as somebody who teaches social justice classes, I've had to learn how do I talk to my students about these issues when they have family members, they're reliant on this money for their livelihood. It is a more complicated question. And I think what I wish our media in a broader sense would do would challenge us to see you know, the levels, the layers, um, the nuances, the subtleties that come in all of these types of big arguments, everything seems deceptively simple. Mm-hmm. But the second you really start to, to dig into it, it is far more complicated. And I, I want, life is messy and complicated. And I think mm-hmm. our media should show it to be messy and complicated. We don't have easy answers, happy endings. I think if we've all watched pandemic movies, we realize that is nothing like going through a pandemic. This no. is it's confusing and it's and it's and it's scary and it's anxiety driven you don't know what's going on you don't know who to trust like it's not as simplistic as the movies make it seem and i don't know if our movies do us a disservice by showing it being deceptively simple right and i know that their goal is not to educate us right these are these are not fiction non nonfiction nonfiction means real nonfiction films these are fiction films right but at the same time, it's okay for the things to be messy and complicated and for things to not be fully resolved. I think that's a better reflection of reality. And, and to be perfectly honest with you, that's one of the reasons why I tend to find myself gravitating towards like Asian cinema. And I liked Hong Kong cinema because characters got mad and lots of people died. And, you know, there was a lot of anger and confusion and there weren't happy endings. And a movie ends and you're like, oh, what do I do with this? I feel like that's just more reflective of what we go through in our daily lives than the typical happy endings, everything works out. I wish it was like that, but it's nowhere near that way in real life. I think if people get accustomed to seeing stories that get wrapped up too quickly and too neatly, there's a sense of disappointment when that's not how things pan out. And we have a sense that we didn't do this right. We failed. No, we just did the best we could with the tools we had. Absolutely. And I love that message, right? We can only make the best decisions we can with the, with the information we have. And of course, with the tools, with the knowledge, like to me, that's more reflective. And, and it's weird because I think that that's a healthier message that gets sent than everything's going to work out. It, it, the grown up lessons that you learn is that not everything works out. <laughs> and you have people coming to you and they are concerned that you you didn't like one aspect of a Bond move, but you loved the, the other 99 percent of it. Yeah. And you're you're probably looking at that saying, yeah, but change doesn't happen perfectly. It doesn't happen all at once. It's in baby steps. Yes. And I think it's interesting because, you know, when I teach my students about change, I'm like, it happens from two ways. You can be on the outsides. Activist work is incredibly important, but you can sort of be there and and ask and and demand really bold changes from the outside. But when it comes to making changes from the inside, we need actors on the inside, agents on the inside, kind of like spy agents on the inside. But those conversations have to be more subtle. They have to be, you know, like you say, baby steps. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time to be in a position to make decisions, right? And so, yeah, that's how change comes about. We need both actors or agents in place, but understanding that the things that you say from the inside don't always mirror, say, the language and the tone of what you can say on, on the outside, but we need both working simultaneously, you know, to make things change. Okay. Uh, and when it comes to being on both sides, I have had a lot of fun looking at your Twitter feed, uh, <laughs> your, your tweet-alongs with various movies, which you've had plenty of time to watch movies these past was it nine, ten months now? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's been a while. However long, however long it's been, my hair's been growing. This is my corona hair. 
<laughs> that I just keep growing out. I'm like, someday I'll go to a hairstylist when this is over. I think it's been eight months, nine months, a while. Yeah. I think it officially started in March, even though we were kind of bracing before that. Yeah. Yeah. I think spring break, that's my sort of midway, mid to late March was when I started to hunker down. Yeah. It's so it's it's I I described it in a previous episode. It's like a big boggle game. Everything was just shaken up, and we're not sure where all the pieces of our lives are going to land after this. Yeah, and it's weird because it's like I can play a long game. I can play a pretty good long game, right? If I know that there's a, you know an exit point, if you were to tell me we're going to have a vaccine in April and everything's going to get back to back to normal, I'll be like, fine, I can last until April. But the fact that there's uncertainty and we just don't know how long this is gonna go, that's when it becomes incredibly tiring. That's when we, in many ways, just sort of lessen what we're doing because it's really hard to stay on guard. It's exhausting to constantly be you know, on guard and worried and, and be vigilant. Um, but unfortunately, there's not much we can do. We just have to be patient, as patient as we can, engage in our social media, have these types of conversations with the people that we love, um, and just try to stick it out. It's, yeah, it's a very uncertain time, and people don't do well with uncertainty. There's the fear of the unknown. This is exactly what we're living through. And it's interesting because, you know, people always talk about uh, different events that have happened throughout history. Mm -hmm. And it's like what it must have been like to have gone through that time. And it's like, it's awful. <laughs> That's what they don't tell you is how awful it is going through it. But back to the Twitter uh, posts, just being on social media and putting myself out more on social media, doing yeah, podcasts. And, and being in, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, I think that's all my social media. It's really been an opportunity for me to reach out because I am in Oklahoma and I am kind of isolated. I'm Canadian, so my family's 2000 kilometers away. Um, so I am here by myself and I have found such comfort, joy and amusement from engaging with people on social media, well, whether it's people just reading along to my 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 tweet alongs, you know, where I use hashtag watch 007 and I watch different films and I'm giving you, there's a bit of scholarship stuff in there and then it's just like straight up reaction. Like it's a good mixed bag of what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling as I'm going through it and having people engage with me, having people care what I have to say and of course playing along. Um, I feel as though I'm part of a really great fan community with James Bond that I, I really didn't feel fully connected with before the coronavirus. And so I have a lot of love and a lot of gratitude just for everyone who just messages me and, and provides me with little rays of sunshine throughout the day. It's, it's honestly, it's been so incredibly uplifting. We've dealt a lot with fan communities on the show from other franchises. And it, how would you peg the Bond fan community? Because it's, I know so many very, very different people who just seem to gravitate toward it. Some you wouldn't necessarily expect. Yeah, we are definitely an eclectic group. Um, I will have to give a shout out to all my women out there, fellow women who are Bond fans. There are a lot of us. Um, who are fans. Um, I know a lot of women have said they felt a little bit hesitant about engaging in the Bond fan community, uh, just because they've always sort of, I don't want to say they've been made to feel, but they have had the sense that, you know, James Bond might not be for them. And so them liking Bond, what does this then mean in the world? And through my conversations with them and through the way that people have been very open and welcoming to me, I've, I've really encouraged them to reach out to others and to really engage to the best of their abilities. And there's some interesting women doing great work on James Bond. So my goal is 
this to connect with them and amplify their voices too. I'm not the only one out there. I would say the vast majority of people that I engage with are fans. They're from different ages. They're from different countries, different backgrounds, and they're very passionate. And of course they like different Bond films, right? Your favorite Bond film. I could even tell you if it's based on a particular demographic. Like I've just seen a spectrum of people arguing for their favorites. And I think it's a really amazing thing because it opens my eyes. And so when I do watch along podcasts, I am seeing the things that fans like in that moment. And I get to comment on them and I get to sort of amplify their voices and their ideas. And I find that to be a really exciting uh, experience. I think with any fan group, there's always going to be a very small, small minority who might not like my presence or the things that I say, and that is fine. They don't, they certainly don't have to. And so they don't have to follow me on social media if, if they don't want to, uh, but everyone else has been like a pretty amazing. And again, different ideas, different viewpoints. I'm constantly learning, engaging and growing, and that's the best space for me to be in. And since you've actually managed to make a career out of this, I have to ask before I let you wrap up, how did that come to be? How did you manage to convince a major university that this was the topic you wanted to teach? Um, I smiled. <laughs> um, so I tried to pitch a course on James Bond uh, when I was teaching in Canada, and I was told it was too pop cultural. No, not what we want to do. And I was like, oh, that sucks. And I came to the University of Oklahoma. I teach in a women's and gender studies department. And at the time, my chair, Dr. Jill Irvine, who's now the um, vice provost, or she provost? I don't know. She's, she's high up in OU now. Um, you know, she definitely was somebody who believed in my ideas and my individuality. She respected me as a colleague. And we decided to test drive it as, I think we called it the James Bond phenomenon, this online course that didn't even have its own number, just to see if students would, would wanna take it. And I remember like printing out flyers and like taping them to different windows, you know, on different buildings. I went to the science building and the math building. Like I went all over campus on message boards thinking maybe someone will take it. And I was filling up like all of my sections in the summer. Um, and students started to demand that I teach it in person. Like, why do I have to take this online? Why can't I see you, an expert, and take it with you in person? And so because of them and their excitement for the course, I was able to offer it in person. We ended up giving it a, a formal title, Gender in James Bond. Uh, it got its own course code. It's considered a general education course. So it went through that entire process of being approved. Um, and so I'm really excited that you know, this institution saw enough in me and enough in this course to see the value um, of studying Bond and being able to study, you know, British and, and American history and world geopolitics and changes in gender movements um, over 60 years and being able to do it in a way um, that is fun, it's entertaining, and it's incredibly engaging. And I will have to say the one thing that I miss the most is being in the classroom with my students, having our discussion days, and hearing them react and theorize in the moment, I still, I learn and I grow from them. They're a, they're a different generation than me in terms of just their spectatorship. Uh, and and I, I constantly learn from them. And again, that's the best place for me to be. I, I wanna hear their ideas and, the, and their thoughts and it matters to me because I'm working in the field. And somehow that makes them even wanna engage even more, right? Like what I'm saying matters, the papers that I write matter, my reflections matter. And I always want my students to feel that way. Their voices do matter to me.
has there been a particular incident where you really thought that the course paid off for the student or even for your own benefit? Oh my goodness. Uh, I, ha I can't even remember a specific occasion, but it's not uncommon for, you know, when I start to talk to my students and I'm, I've done pretty good with my pacing here, but when my mind starts to go, it goes to the races. And so I'll start talking to my students and I'll start theorizing in the moment. And then I'm like, I need to get a piece of paper and I have to write down what I'm thinking through our, our constructive conversations. I can't think of a specific, no, I can, I can. Um, I have a paper coming out on um, sexual violence in the Sean Connery era films. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about Thunderball uh, and Patricia Fearing and that really, really awful scene where Bond sexually harasses Patricia Fearing and then coerces her into having sex. And that just started my mind going into other examples in the Sean Connery era. And I realized that I had to write a paper really for my students. Uh, in order to showcase all of these ideas, because they were talking about Sean Connery's bond as being the quote unquote rapey bond. That's how they're coding him. And I was like, okay, first of all, that's incredibly disturbing, you know, to utilize that as, as a descriptor. Um, so I was horrified. Um, mm -hmm. But I also wanted to understand where they were coming from um, and how they were seeing this particular um, uh, era of bond. And so I ended up doing a research project in order to do these inquiries. And then of course, um, it hasn't come out yet, but I do give them research, even if it's like been accepted for publication. I give them the Word documents um, before they come out, because there's usually a gap of a year or two before things get published. And I want them to have the most updated research. So they usually get like papers that are going to come out well before they come out um, on, on the course. Nice. Yeah. Okay. I guess last thing I guess I should throw out there before we wrap up here. Sure. Um, do you, in your mind... Because there have been there's been a fan theory going around for quite some time that uh, the Bond in each one of these movies is not necessarily the same guy from yeah. Doctor No all the way through. Where do you stand on that? Do you do you find it's necessary to make it the same character, or do you think that there have been iterations of the character? That's a really hard question for me to answer because until people started to say these fan theories, I don't think I had fully thought about whether or not it was the same bond or different bond. You know, I would always say it's Connery's bond and Moore's bond. I always felt that it was the same basic character, but just different interpretations of it. So different mm -hmm. people can play multiple characters, you know, and, and give us different interpretations of it. There's been many Romeos out there in Romeo and Juliet. It's just different interpretations of it. Um, whether it's, you know, these are entirely different men and James Bond itself is a code name. If fans want to go down that, that, that rabbit hole, rock on. <laughs> I, I don't necessarily subscribe to it. Um, and I guess part of me just wonders what I will get from that, whether, whether I make a determination on this, where that will actually lead me. And I don't think it'll make me enjoy the films any more or less. And so it's just, a, it isn't something that I've really dug deeply into and pondered. I do think it's really interesting that we get different interpretations. I think that's kind of amazing and that we can have our different preferences. And if you want somebody more serious, you've got your Timothy Dalton. And if you want mm -hmm. somebody who can give you, again, love me some, some Roger Moore in eyebrow acting, you know, give me Roger Moore. I think he can deliver a line that like nobody else. And if you want somebody who simply just looks the part, I think Sean Connery, you know, just walks into a room and you're like, he's Bond, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've got all these different iterations. And I think they're they emphasize different elements. And I think that's interesting, whether or not they're the same person, different code name. I, I honestly don't, don't know. And I'm open to other people's 
ideas and I can defer to other people. If other people have really strong opinions, sure, I'd love to hear them. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Dr. Funnel, I thank you so much for joining me here today. And I want to make sure that anybody who wants to get a hold of you can. So mm -hmm. I'm going to put anything, you, any contact info you want in the show notes. Okay. Um, so social media info, uh, links to your books, whatnot, any, any other place you want to point them? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Lisa Funnel, two N's and two L's in Funnel. You can find me on Instagram at Dr. Lisa Funnel, Facebook at Dr. Lisa Funnel. My webpage is lisafunnel.com. I did not include the doctor when I put that one together. Lacked the foresight <laughs> that I would be doing this. Um, and if you go on Amazon and you just Google my name, I have my own Amazon page and it'll take you to things that I've published. And Google Scholar is also your friend. And it, uh, if you Google it, you'll, you'll see all the different things that I've published. And there's, there's, there's a lot. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Like I said, all that's going to be in our show notes. So thank you so much for being here and I'm hoping to have this chat again soon. Thank you. I would like to thank Dr. Funnel for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. For the community building part of the show today, I would just like to ask, what do you think? I would like to get your opinions on this episode and any other episode out there. If any episode I've brought up has raised some questions that you'd like to have addressed, or if you think that a certain conversation could be continued later on, send me an email at bossigpodcast.yahoo.com or drop me a line on Facebook or on Twitter. I'm at Aaron Bossig. I will do my best to bring that back into the show at some point down the road. Or I'd really appreciate just having an email conversation with you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher. And we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.